Braver Angels presents Uniting America. I'm your host, John Wood Jr. Today's guest is Alexandra Hudson, founder of the intellectual community Civic Renaissance, dedicated to infusing beauty, truth, and goodness into our public discourse, and the author of The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. In today's conversation, we talk about the book and what a deeper understanding of the idea of civility really looks like. This is another conversation drawn from Braver Angels 2023 convention in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. The world is full of bad news at the moment. Violence has exploded in the Gaza Strip with a suddenness that few were expecting. American politics continues its destabilizing slide downward with perhaps equally unexpected congressional coup, with the ouster of former Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy following the bipartisan passage of a continuing resolution to avoid a government shutdown, which prompted outrage among a minority of House Republicans who were joined by Democrats in voting for McCarthy's removal. The removal of a speaker who, one might recall, only managed to be confirmed in his position originally after 15 rounds of voting, itself unprecedented, is wholly unprecedented in the history of Congress and adds to the perception so many of us have that our politics are spiraling out of control. That said, I just returned from a trip uh, recently to the Nantucket Project on the island of Nantucket, where I took the stage alongside speakers ranging from Michelle Obama to Andrew Yang to Laura Ingram in front of a crowd of philanthropists, journalists, government leaders, and others looking for ways of supporting the work of pluralism and depolarization in America. It's a tall order, of course, and the disagreements are profound. But it did remind me in a powerful way that the movement to renew American civic life is rising. This was a gathering of elites, to be sure, but I have traveled America and have borne witness to the vibrant grassroots energy and innovation streaming into this work from every corner of the country, from both sides of the aisle, and also from independents and third-party Americans who are rejecting the two-party binary in favor of a deeper common ground. The civic renewal movement, the bridging movement, is growing, and you can be a part of it. If you haven't already, join us at BraveRangels.org and learn how. And now I give you my friend, Lexi Hudson. But I'm very happy, very grateful to have the opportunity to have uh, a conversation here um, with a woman who's been a friend of mine for a good number of years now, um, probably the last five years at least. Um, Somebody who is a deeply insightful, philosophical, um, and cultured voice on the deeper values that inform um, Western society, and our civic traditions. And she has written a book called The Soul of Civility, dispelling a common notion, which is that civility is mere politeness, right? Because politeness won't be enough to transform the spirit of our politics and to heal the wounds of our country. But maybe a deeper understanding of civility can. And so with that set up, I would like to introduce you all to Lexi Hudson. If you have a warm round of applause. So did I did I do a, a reasonable job sort of setting up sort of the essential premise of the book? Go ahead and tell us a little bit about the book, about the soul's ability. And um, yeah, tell us just what the heck you mean by that. What does civility mean? So um, I wrote this book. It's the product of 
um, almost a decade of work and a lifetime of thought. And uh, the book comes out this October, uh, October 10th, 2023 with St. Martin's Press. And I just can't wait to share with all of you and share with the world. Um, but it's part of my um, my personal story that, that emerged, um, that from which this book emerged. So my mother, it, her name is Judy the Manners Lady. And um, what I discovered while writing this book is that my mother is one of four internationally renowned experts in the world of etiquette named Judith. There are four of them. You may, have, <laughs> you may have heard of uh, Judith Martin, uh, the Washington Post columnist. Miss um, Manners, she's the most famous Judith in the world of, of, of the Manners biz, but my mother is also named Judy. And so uh, which I, I just thought it was very funny uh, discovering that while writing this book. But um, my mother always said to us growing up, um, that manners were an outward extension of our inward character. That's why manners mattered. Right. And um, and then I found myself in uh, a very hostile uh, presidential administration in 2017. And I'm the thick of this divisive moment in Washington and in our country's body politic. And um, I was surrounded by two extremes in government. On one hand, there were the overtly aggressive and hostile, the people that would elbow and climb over anyone to get to the top, to get what they wanted, mm-hmm. proximity power, whatever it was, a promotion. The House of Cards. Uh, exactly, exactly, <laughs> the, 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 the pure Machiavellian. Mm-hmm. But then on the other side, there, were, uh, there was this other contingent, and they were the, the, the more um, uh, polished and, and refined, and they, 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 they knew um, the rules of, of etiquette and politeness, and uh, they would smile and, and flatter you, and then knife you in the back the moment that you no longer serve their purposes. Oh, this does sound like house of <laughs> And so, at least with the overtly aggressive and hostile, you knew where they stood, but you never knew where the, 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 you know, the polite contingent stood. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing these two extremes, and, and I thought I could do business with the polite people, yet I was thrown by, like I had my mother's, um, my mother's words in my mind that manners matter because they were an outward extension of our inward character. And yet I was surrounded by people who were well-mannered enough and yet ruthless and mm. cruel, especially to those who were less powerful than them. And so that really caused me to think deeply about um, the, the difference between civility and politeness. It caused me to realize that there has to be more, there, there's like richer and deeper, but there has to be a way for us to distinguish between uh, the manners, the trappings, the niceties that could actually sometimes be a mask for malice and for for um, uh, for cruelty. Hmm. Interesting. So your book does it deal primarily with um, civility in the um, in the public sphere in the context of personal and social and familial relationships? Where do you apply your focus? Uh, it's both. It's all of it. it. It all matters, but it all starts and really ends with the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, I use the metaphor of the garden as, uh, as like the kind of central metaphor that I carry throughout my book, that civilization is like a vibrant, flourishing garden, and that each citizen in a society is an individual plot of land. We mm-hmm. each have our little individual plots of land. Some of the seeds in our plot of land are given to us. It's the, it's the society we're born into, the habits, the mores, the values that we're born into. But then as we grow, 
we have the opportunity to examine those those seeds critically. Um, do we want to um, continue to do we want to uproot some seeds? Maybe those are seeds of bias or or racism that, that we were inherited in our society. Uh, and do we, we have the opportunity to plant new seeds, seeds of um, of, of compassion, of grace, of kindness, and um, uh, the individual decisions that we make with our uh, the our time and attention and our habits to um, to be kind to our fellow uh, human beings. That those are the seeds that um, that give life to the soil, and that and that promote life in the soils um, and the plots around us. Or we can plant seeds of you know cruelty and bigotry that are corrosive weeds that invade the soil around us, exact nutrients from the soil, and, and corrode the, the the garden of civilization that undermine the, the the garden of civilization. So all that to say, we all have um, a role to play in, in flourishing and in, in, in sustaining the flourishing garden of civilization with um, with our with the, in the small ways with our small decisions that they that's a um that civilization is not a foregone conclusion it's very fragile but um our, our daily decisions can make or break it let's see now uh you are a very well-mannered individual i happen to observe um but it does sound like you're saying that the that the work of civility doesn't really start with the outward polish and so forth um that is it is an expression of it's the outward manifestation of what what lies within Right. Um, but what are some of those seeds? Are there individual seeds that you can sort of name? I mean, how do we and how do we go about nurturing them ex- exactly? I mean, is this a matter of the virtues of you know, kindness and charity and courage? I mean, you know, if I was going to go home and say, OK, let me grow these seeds inside of myself. If it's not a matter of me knowing, you know, uh, which, uh, you know, which side to start, you know, eating, using my utensils from, you know, at a, at a dinner party, mm-hmm. then where do I begin? Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the story of uh, Queen Victoria. So she had the Queen of Persia to her home for dinner, her palace for dinner. And uh, the Queen of Persia did the unthinkable. She took a bowl and lifted it to her lips and drank it like soup. But it was not a bowl of soup. It was a finger bowl meant for washing your hands before dinner. But what did Queen Victoria do? She didn't let the breach of propriety stop her from having a friendship with the Queen of Persia, she lifted the bowl to her lips and did the same instead. So she broke the rule of the flight the prevailing norms of the day to, for the sake of friendship, for the sake of community, for the sake of having, of trust, of having, I'm not, I'm not embarrassing, you know, her guest and, and her friend and, and not, this is key, not weaponizing the rules, not letting the, the rules of, um, of propriety and etiquette, um, be it, be a tool of, of feeling superior to others. Cause often that, that they can be used as this tool of, of self superiority. Um, so there's that, and, and I love that story cause it shows the essential difference difference between civility and politeness. So politeness is technique, it's manners, it's the rule about whether or not what to do with the finger bowl and definitely not to, to drink it. Um, civility is not just about the rules. It's not just the superficial technique of etiquette. It's a disposition of the heart. It's a way of seeing others as our, our moral equals and worthy of a bare minimum of respect because of their dignity as human beings even when we differ. <laughs> and that sometimes being civil requires breaking rules, telling people that they're wrong or overlooking a broken rule, such as what Queen Victoria did in that, in that story. I think that that might, uh, that might surprise people, that there's a component of civility that calls upon us to be direct with each other. Is that what I mean? Right, saying? absolutely. So um, 
why don't we think about that when we think about civility? It's so interesting. A lot of people, there are like several distinct spheres that of, of, of people, of disciplines that really care about these questions. On one hand, there's the political theorists and the political scientists who care about the issue that we all care about, which is hyperpartisanship and polarization that is undermining our democracy. And those people care about, you know, um, big questions of like how to talk together in the public square, but they don't want to talk about manners. That that's like too, you know, menial. That that, that they, they want to keep at the level of, you know, big macro questions about our democracy. And then there's the the. The, the civil society people that care about you know free um, free associative life associative life and then there and then there are the etiquette people the the, the, the contingent like my mother mm-hmm. the people that that love etiquette books and self help books yeah. and to date uh, and I've done a lot of reading I'm open to being wrong if you know if anyone has done this I haven't found anyone that kind of threads that needle that that has has um, really cogently connected all of these disparate spheres and shown the connection between um, the kind of big questions of democracy, of how to do life together across difference, but also connected that to the small ways, the small things like 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 matters and how and how we treat one another, why that matters to the big questions of our democracy. People intuit that they're connected. And yet, um, uh, there hasn't been a really cogent way of, of connecting them um, that, that I've come across. So my book is an attempt to show, uh, to connect the micro to the macro, to connect like the daily small seeds of kindness and benevolence and grace that we choose to conduct, to conduct ourselves with, you know, to our friends and family, to our neighbors, um, to our Uber drivers, mm-hmm. but all, and why that matters to sustaining the garden of civilization and the flourishing garden of, of our democracy. Mm, I see. Now... Was there ever, in this country at least, some golden age of civility? I mean, you know, so one of the things that we oftentimes uh, get in sort of the work that we do at Ray Rangers, what some people confront me with is sort of this idea that, well, you know, aren't you guys sort of, you know, um, uh, valorizing uh, a bygone era or looking at rose-colored glasses at a, an age that never was? And so, you know, political polarization was... Uh, not nearly so pronounced partisan polarization in the 1950s and 60s, but we would hardly look at the 1960s as a unified era on balance. Of course, you know, you had the civil rights movement, you had the peace movement, you know, gender rights movement, and violence in the streets, and, and all of that. Um, are you looking backward in any sense? Is there some age in history that you feel you know we should return to? What's your relationship to history in this way? It's a great question. I I think history is both a caution and a comfort. It's a caution because we can definitely point to um, eras in our nation's history, but in human history, where things have been worse. I mean, we're in Gettysburg for a reason, having these conversations about how, how to heal our deep divides because of the bloodshed that occurred just steps from where we're now standing. We're in the midst of a civil war, and thankfully we're not in a civil war now. So it's easy to say, okay, it's, 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 a, it's a caution that we were there. We, uh, we have been there before. It's not, it's not impossible to envision us getting there once again. But it's also a comfort because as bad as things have been and as bad as things are now, they're not as bad as they necessarily have been, have been before. So I think looking to history is absolutely essential. One thing that I've learned in my study of the past is that the human condition doesn't change. 
people are people wherever they are, whether they're um, you know on a local school board or in the the, the Oval Office, um, whether they're um, you know it doesn't matter the era, it doesn't matter the place. That that the human human condition doesn't change. Human nature, humans are the same wherever they are. We are defined by um, a deep sociability. We we flourish in relationship. We yearn for community with others, and yet. We're all, we, we, we fulfill our potential as human beings in a relationship, and yet we're also deeply selfish. We're defined by self-love, and those two things are intention, our love of others and self-love. And that is why friendship and community will always be fragile. And that is why, did you know that the oldest book in the world, uh, written in 2800 BC in ancient Egypt, is a civility book? It was written by uh, an Egyptian visor named Ptahhotep, and it's the oldest book in the world that we currently have today. It's called The Teachings of Ptahhotep, and it's 37 maxims on this question that we are all gathered in this room and at this, at this convention to talk about, which is how to do life together across difference. It, it, you pick it up, you can go on, go on, find, go on Gutenberg and, and get a copy of it right now and read it, and they're just as relevant, these 38 maxims, today as they were then. Like, he has prohibitions um, against being cruel to people who are less powerful than you and not and being good to your friends, not just meeting something, but all the time. He says, don't beat your wife, which was, you know, uh, very enlightened for, for, that, for that time. Yeah, he says, don't gossip. He says, don't, uh, he, he, he just as... Um, we definitely haven't caught up to that one. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But the point is, you, you and uh, this is the, the, the second chapter of my book, that I explore people like Patahotep that have arisen in across history and culture independently. And there's been this remarkable continuity of the sorts of, um, of, of admonitions and encouragements and reminders and maxims and precepts mm-hmm. and rules of how to do life together. There's, there's this continuity to the same things over and over and over again. And that's why uh, human nature doesn't change, which is why this book from 2,800 years ago instructs us today. Right. So you've mentioned this book. Um, is your understanding of civility something that is informed by religious traditions, by humanism and philosophy? Um, I know that you, you know, you're, you're deeply knowledgeable uh, student of various traditions, but are there particular strains that you pull from uh, in coming to your own? Yes, my intellectual influences um, are my faith. I'm Protestant, Orthodox, Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I, I, a lot of the kind of recurring characters in the book are um, Plato and Socrates and a, a lot of Blaise Pascal, 17th uh, century uh, polymath and mathematician, um, Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, there, there are, um, Adam Smith is, is in there. And then, what, so those are kind of the, my prominent intellectually formative thinkers. And yet, what I loved while researching for this book was finding their ideas echoed in other ethical, moral traditions, philosophical traditions as well. That thoughtful students of the human experience have and will come to the same observations about what it takes to do life together well, independently. And that's remarkable. I think that's really, that's, that was a really fun, uh, just seeing this continuity across history and culture. Right, indeed. Now, if we were talking about, you know, etiquette courses and sort of the, the art and refinement of politeness, I would venture to suggest that for, for many of us, there may be the sense that this is almost sort of a class-specific sort of, you know, sort of pastime, right? Like, oh, this is something that, 
fancy, well-educated people, you know, can spend their time on as far as, you know, working folks. I mean, you know, who's got, who's got time to think about these things? Is there anything in what you're saying that is, you know, something that we should look at as just being the sole province of folks who have the time and space and leisure for it? Or, um, is there something which you're writing that's actually the property of everybody available to everyone? So there's a great story that answers that question. It's about the time when Thomas Jefferson was president of the United States, and he was hosting for a state dinner Anthony Mary. He was the British ambassador, the English ambassador to the United States. And Jefferson, um, you know, he was our architect of liberty. He led the declaration. He led the uh, one of the leaders of the Revolutionary War. The this like intentional departure from the old world and their traditions and norms. And so he, he was this proponent of, of, of basic human equality, um, at least uh, we'll talk about his personal life maybe, mm-hmm. maybe uh, in, a little, in, in a little bit, yeah. Um, and so he had this, this, this idea to play a prank on Anthony Mary. And so Anthony and his wife come to dinner and Anthony is used to being the most important person in the room as the English ambassador as he expects to be given a seat at the head of the table. And he's surprised. First of all, uh, Jefferson greets him in his house coat and slippers, like basically in his pajamas. And Anthony Mary is absolutely scandalized. Like, what is this person doing? <laughs> Secondly, he's ushered in um, to the uh, you know the state dinner at the White House, and he's scandalized to find that it's a round table. There's no place of honor for him to sit. What will he do? And it is um, an absolute catastrophe. Like, I have like, that problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, what's that scripture? The first shall be last, last shall be first. Like, this is yeah. definitely a moment of, of, of humility, of, of humbling for Anthony Mary. And the evening just gets worse and worse. Jefferson is, like, constantly poking holes in Anthony's pride, where he just, you know, expects the biggest of honor and center of attention. And, and he wants Jefferson to assume this, the old world notions of propriety and hierarchy. And, and Jefferson wanted nothing to do with it. He intentionally, um, he actually had a, this whole code of etiquette that he instituted in the White House called Pele Mele etiquette, and which means kind of haphazard etiquette, where it's just like a kind of a, a quality. There, there were there were there was no hierarchy, no rank. Anyone who went to the White House, the White House under Jefferson's um, presidency, um, there was no titles, there was no there was no preferences according to birth or status or anything. Which is just like radical equality. And um, there's this line about. Uh, a story about this state dinner at the end, uh, someone leaned over to Anthony Mary's wife and said, this will be the stuff of war. (laughs) The fact that that Jefferson had just, you know, foregone all these, all these niceties and and trivialities of of the old world in favor of a new egalitarian etiquette and, and, and source of manners. And I think what, what is so pleasing to ask about that story is that like, no one likes snobs. No one likes people who walk into a room and expect to be the center of attention, expect to be, you know, fawned over and deferred to. Like we, we love those stories. And it's, I think, this is why we were all so upset at Bill Doherty. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But we can take a lot of. Uh, we can be grateful that in our country we don't have a set of um, mores attached to hierarchy and rank. Like in in America, we're all born Americans and that's the title, that's the rank that we can attach ourselves to the values associated with the title, our fundamental human equality. And yes, there there is disparity, um, you know, across socioeconomic statuses, but but we don't have those same, you know, mores that that were attached to old world rank and aristocracy and monarchy. Um, It's just about fundamentally respecting others and being decent and kind to others. And it's interesting 
interesting. People from the UK um, come over here and it, it, it vexes them. They're frustrated that they can't really tell the status or wealth of an American based on how they're dressed or how they talk. In the UK, it's still very classist. They can tell by your accent, by how you talk, where you were educated, what zip code you were brought up in. And I think that's a beautiful thing that we can, um, that, that we have that sort of value and quality that's sort of embedded within our social norms. Matter of fact, here in this country, the person wears the same pair of jeans and t-shirt every other day is probably a billionaire. Right, probably still Silicon Valley billionaire. Yeah, exactly. main marketing career. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, I know uh, we said originally we'd give it 30 minutes, but I want to see if we can go a few minutes longer, maybe give us an extra 10, just so we can field questions uh, from, from folks in the room. Uh, I do want to ask uh, one more question, though, of my own, um, which is um, in an era of, obviously, hyperpolarization, right, where so much of our sense of civic life and how we engage in democracy is sort of rooted in very, very aggressive activism, you know, but we sort of feel the need to shout down people and, so, you know, um, really, um, you know, speak to truth to power in a way that can sometimes feel hostile to your neighbors even. How do you, how do you, how do you allow for your message and this understanding of civility to be relevant to people who feel that the only thing that, that really matters um, is the fight. And, you know, uh, given how important the issues are to people, that the ends justify the means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, another way to phrase your question, I think, is, um, you know, can nice guys get ahead? Can mm -hmm. people, can people who are bound by decency and morality and respect for others, can they ever, will it ever be a fair fight between people that care about, um, restraining themselves by those virtues and values sure. in a fight against someone who is unshackled by those, <laughs> but doesn't care and will do anything to, to win. Mm -hmm. And, um, I love to put in this, in this answer this question, Machiavelli, Nicola Machiavelli in dialogue with Socrates. So mm -hmm. Machiavelli is the one who gave us that, uh, phraseology that the ends justifies the means. He says right. to gain and maintain power, you have to be willing to have a pretense of values and maybe even Christian morality and, mm -hmm. um, you know, caring about people and about, um, but in the end of the day, you just have to do what it takes to win. That mm -hmm. the ends, the goals justify whatever, whatever you have to do to, to get it. Mm -hmm. And um, Socrates, by contrast, he, um, uh, he Socrates is, as you all probably know, um, he was uh, put to death. He was the wisest man who ever lived, arguably, and he was put to death by his fellow Athenians for being a gadfly. He, he told his fellow citizens hard truths, um, made them look in the mirror and, and consider, you know, hard aspects about society and themselves they didn't want to hear, and they forced him to commit suicide. So he was this gadfly who spoke hard truths to his fellow citizens, and he was killed for that. So he's a good kind of hero of civility in that way, um, martyr, for, martyr for civility. And um, what he says is that, um, he says, virtue is health of the soul and vice is sickness of the soul. So to, to, as that applies to civility, like treating others with decency and kindness and respect, that's virtue of the soul. Like um, healthy people um, are, are, are benevolent and kind to other people, whereas maliciousness to others, cruelty to those in positions of powerlessness, um, that is sickness of the soul. So there's no, there's no um, 
being uncivil to others and getting ahead because it's it's its own punishment and by contrast civility is its own reward and and i'll just say really quickly the title of the book the soul of civility it's homage to dr king's uh, letter from a birmingham jail Mm -hmm. and his argument about segregation dr king says that segregation debases both the soul of both the segregator and the segregated. He says that the um, it hurts the segregated because it gives them a false sense of inferiority and the segregator because it gives them a false sense of inferiority. And that this is the same for civility, that civility doesn't just debase the other, the person to whom you one might be uncivil, it debases the self, it deforms the soul, it becomes malicious, malignant sickness of the soul. So a false sense of inferiority on the one hand and a false sense of superiority. That's what, that's what, that's King's um, phraseology for segregation. And I borrow that and pay homage to it in King's throughout the book, which is why I know, I know you love it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but, uh, but that is, but that civility, it's not just hurting someone. Else, it's hurting yourself. You can't be cruel to your fellow human being and not hurt yourself. We're so interconnected mm-hmm. as, as a species and as a community. I do appreciate you relating that to the letter from Birmingham Jail because I oftentimes have people uh, reference that letter to me as an example of the fact that Dr. King would dispense with any pretense of love for his enemies in you know when, when making the case that you know the white moderate, for instance, is you know, the, the, the biggest uh, obstacle towards the, the progress, towards equality. If you're familiar with that letter, you know, he goes to his arguments. But he begins that letter. So that letter is a, uh, it's a letter he wrote while in prison in response to um, uh, condemnation of his methods of civil disobedience that had been addressed towards him in a publication by a collection of white clergymen who, you know, uh, said they were socially, you know, liberal and favoring desegregation, but they felt that King's methods were too extreme and were disrupting the peace of the community too much. And so King says some very, you know, very, very deeply critical things, but he begins that letter by making it clear uh, that these are individuals with whom he shares faith, with whom he shares values, with whom he shares a common desire for the betterment of society, that these are people for whom he has love and respect. And so that's how he frames his essential attitude towards his critics before going forward with his own criticisms. And it sounds to me like that may be a pretty good example. It's a great example, speaking the truth and love that he and that's his, you know, you know this that that's his model or his foundation for nonviolent resistance. Right. It's loving the person that you're protesting, loving the person that you're standing up against. Right. And that's what that's, um, you know, uh, uh, upper level like a restraint against against violence, right? Like you're not going to be violent towards someone you love, but you can, um, you can, you can express truth to them mm-hmm. and love them, and, that, and that's and that's a loving act in and of itself. Yeah. Indeed. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Lexi Hudson. One round of applause for Ms. Hudson. Ms. And uh, with that, if folks have any questions, uh, forgive us. Uh, we only have the microphones we have up here, but this is a close enough space where I think we can all hear each other. Um, does anybody have any questions uh, for Lexi, whether about the, the book or anything, anything that might be related to it? Yes. Um, uh, Diana, Diana, and then my friend uh, over here behind the couch. Yes. Um, sure. So I... I really love where, where you kind of ended and you talked about this idea of can nice guys get ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm wondering how you address or if, if you just have thoughts on the risks associated with that. Because if you look at some of the examples, Martin Luther King Jr., Socrates, 
but you throw out even Jesus Christ. If you are a person who preaches love, that doesn't always go for well. In fact, it can get you killed. So how do we address the risk of putting yourself out there, even when you're speaking um, truth in love, and, and the real risk that is involved in that, and the fact that you really are, even if you're doing the right thing, even if you're being kind about it, you're still taking a big risk. That's a, he- that's a heavy question. It is a heavy one. And thank, thank you, you. Thank you for, for, for thinking of that. Um, yes, there are, there are risks involved and you might not, you know, succeed according to the logic of the world and that you might not win the office or the promotion or whatever the external temporal goal is that you're trying to achieve. But, you know, as Socrates might say, as another thinker, um, medieval thinker, Boethius might say, like virtue is its own reward and, t- and keeping your integrity is its own its own reward and you know socrates would say is getting that promotion or the the white house or whatever it is at any cost is that even a victory if it's at the expense of your integrity and at the expense of your ability to like sleep with yourself at night because you know you hurt people along the way and i mean that's you know a trope i love in literature and um and you know great stories from across history and culture people that that gain empire and gain every external temporal pleasure in life and they're still unhappy because they at the end of the day what have they got if they haven't got their own soul intact so thanks for that question indeed okay towards the center of the room yes sir Hi, thank you. Um, and I'm sorry, I wasn't able to get into the room. So I may have missed some early parts. My question is the extent to which you see civility in the, as a sort of a moral or ethical or a strategic versus kind of a strategic kind of way of you engaging. And I want to put it in the context of. A lot of work I do is with people who feel at you know maybe kind of Birmingham jail speech feel deeply, deeply hurt, you know, and may not buy into the notion that civility per se has value in it, given the harm that they've done, hurt they feel. So I'm just kind of wonder how you feel, you know. Where does the civility approach feel in that uh, for you in that context? Yeah, thank you. So it's my view of civility is that it's not instrumental. It's it I guess it's both an instrumental good to your question of it, it's a tool and that it can and has been an effective mechanism of social improvement. Like I reclaim this whole civil disobedience tradition under my umbrella of and my definition of civility because it's about citizenship, the duties and obligations of a citizen and the civis in the, in the community. And sometimes we are obligated as citizens to speak out, to, to protest, to, to, to debate, um, to do any, any number of things um, if it means uh, that we're standing up for equality and dignity and, and justice for, for other people. So to your question, it's both uh, a tool, it can be a tool, but it's also an instrumental good. It's ex- explicitly moral and ethical, and it's good in and of itself, even if it doesn't, even if it ends up being to uh, our, our prior question, even if it ends up um, that we don't gain whatever goal we're aspiring for, that it's good in and of itself to have conducted ourselves with, with integrity and to treat have treated others with the decency and respect that they deserve by virtue of our shared dignity and our and our shared humanity as human beings. Indeed. I think we have time for one more question. Someone uh, 
So one more question, three hands go up simultaneously. I'm gonna have to go with my friend, Kara Thompson. Okay, thank you. How do you balance being kind to other people that you feel are violating boundaries? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So part of civility is respecting others by virtue of our um, shared humanity, shared dignity. Uh, and that means telling uh, you know, hard truths, but some of but civility also requires respecting ourselves enough to say no and to draw hard boundaries that, you know, it's really tempting to want to please others and say yes and, and be polite. That's the polite thing to do. But that's not worth it if it breeds resentment or if it, you know, is as a, at a cost to ourselves. We're literally overextending ourselves and not doing justice to uh, that's not that's not respectful to other people to say yes when we don't want to or to let them traverse a boundary that makes us uncomfortable. It's not respecting them because it's breeding resentment towards them that, uh, and it's not respectful to us. We need, like, we need to know who we are, what our, uh, what our boundaries are, um, and, and respect ourselves enough to uphold those. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Thank you so much. Once again, and the book is? Uh, the Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves, coming out this October. So please buy your copies now. And I'd love to give everyone in this room um, a, a, a copy. So please uh, make sure to share your contact information with me after this so I can do that. There you, there you go. So also going by Lexi Hudson. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Uniting America. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating, review, or suggestions. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram and tune in for more content. And learn more about the movement to depolarize America at braverangels.org.